not sure they've been away and they're back and they're going away again. And, uh, but it's a privilege to have him tonight as he comes and shares with us. So let's give him a, uh, a welcoming rouse of applause. There I am. Good evening, take three. How are you? You good? Can you? <laughs> That's what I was looking for. Isn't it wonderful when you get in the place where someone says to you, and you're good, and, and you don't have to find life within yourself because Christ has put life within you, and it is within yourself, but it's not from you, and you can just scream yes. Isn't that wonderful? To not be under pressure to find the life from you, but to just receive. And then in the the same instance, be able to go, yeah, I'm awesome, because Jesus is in me. We are going back to Africa. It's going to be fun. Um, If you would like some more information about it, there's some of these at the uh, info counter. There's a picture of one of our little guys on the front. And we're going back to be the directors of a children's base in South Africa um, with Iris Ministries. Uh, and Irish Ministries is really fun because it's headed up by Jesus. <laughs> and um, there's a couple called Heidi and Roland Baker who are incredible followers of Jesus. And um, so we won't be there in Mozambique. We're going to be in South Africa, um, but we'll have an amazing time. We're probably heading back for a minimum of two years. We're feeling like there's a bit of a blessing on three years, which um, when I reflect on what's in Bex's heart for little ones, it could well turn into 30, but we will be led by him. As to how long we go. So if you want some information, uh, there's that. There's some words on the back, which um, they're just one-worders, and we would love you to read them and to ask what God's saying about those one-words over South Africa. Um, One of the things we really want is to... You are our home. This is our home. Um, I know we haven't been around that much over the last few months. We have met up with quite a few of you outside of this, but we just really want you to know that we love you and that you are precious to us and that you are special to us. And that every time we come back here, it's like walking into mum and dad's lounge. Um, and we are kids of this house. Um, and we would love it if, if he leads. And um, we don't want to place the pressure or expectation on anybody. But as he leads, um, if God wants you to partner with us in what he's doing there. This is the beautiful thing. When one person sows a seed, one person reaps a reward. But if Bex and I and, and 20 or however many feel called sow a seed, then we'll all reap a reward. And I know that what's happening here will bless us, and we hope and pray that what's happening in South Africa will bless you. Um, so there's some one word is we would love to have a crew of people who are praying prophetically over South Africa, who are reflecting on what God is saying about that country and that nation, about what he wants to release. So if that's you, grab one of those, have a look. Um, I won't talk about it anymore because it will only apply to some of you. Um, I want to talk tonight about um, transitioning. But before I do, there's a couple of things that are really on my heart. So I just want to share two very random, well, one's probably a little more random, one's not so random, and then we'll get into it. Um, the first thing is, in, uh, who's a parent here? Okay, that's a good number. All of you guys can reflect on maybe the day that you will be. Oh, well done, sorry. You can learn from this couple here. So just face them and receive from them. But um, in 1 Kings chapter 3... Um, God comes to Solomon, and he asks him this question. He says, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you anything. Tell me what you want. And one of the dangers is when we read the word of God with our mind is that our mind tells us that we already know it, and we fail to receive what we don't already know. Does that make sense? I've read that story so many times. You know, God asks Solomon, what do you want? 
And Solomon says, give me wisdom because I have to govern this people of yours, God, this amazing people of yours, and I am young and inexperienced. Give me a wise and understanding heart. The word understanding literally means, in the original language, seeing. Give me a seeing heart. Let me see you and let me see the people and let me govern well. And God says, because you haven't asked for riches or fame or fortune, I'll give you wisdom. I'll also give you all those other things. Do you know what the next line is? Then Solomon awoke. Does that blow your mind? Solomon made a covenant with God in his sleep. God comes to Solomon and says, what do you want? I mean, he he writes him a blank check and it doesn't even have to have numbers on it. It can have anything on it. And he does it in his sleep. And I'd never seen that before because I thought I knew the story. And I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, God says meditate on the the book of the, the word of the Lord day and night. And for Solomon, in his sleep, was one of the most defining encounters and experiences he had with God. And so when you lay yourself down to go to sleep, make sure that God teaches you how to lay yourself down in a heart position of yieldedness before him. So that while you're asleep, he can minister to you and teach you things and access your heart in a way that he might not be able to access it when your mind's in the way when you're awake. Make sense? So God says to Solomon, then I'll give you anything. But, but the question I want to ask is, why did God ask Solomon that question? Nobody else has had that question asked. Solomon was the only one. Here's a blank check, Solomon. What do you want? God hasn't said that to me, <laughs> quite wisely so. I don't know that he said it to any of you either. But throughout history, we he may have said it to several people, maybe many. But we only have biblically one example where God said that. Why did God ask Solomon? In Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon writes, When I was a son to my father, his father was David and he had many sons. When I was a son to my father and the only son to my mother, his mother was Bathsheba, Solomon was Bathsheba's only son. When I was a son to my father, the only son to my mother, my father instructed me, get wisdom. My father told me to get wisdom wisdom. And I want to suggest to all you parents that God asked Solomon the question because he knew that David had positioned Solomon to answer it. Amen. He asked him the question because God knew that his father had positioned him to answer it well. I remember being a little boy of about five or six And my mum coming to me one day and saying to me, Johnny, if you want to walk serving God, serving your nation and the nations of the world, you need wisdom. And I remember being six years old and screwing up my little six-year-old eyes in my bed one night and going, God, give me wisdom. And I was desperate. I don't know where it came from, but there was this desperation of this cry of this, God, give me wisdom, give me wisdom, give me wisdom. I need wisdom, give me wisdom, give me wisdom. And my mum had started to position me to seek the things of the kingdom. And I want to encourage you parents who are, and I want to challenge you parents who are, because there's a heck of a lot of time, money, and energy that goes into raising our kids in the ways of the world. But there needs to be how you treat your kids, what you speak over your kids and into your kids positions them for what God can ask them and release into them. And, and I'll, I'm, I'm quite desperate about it. 
Because our nation needs people growing up that are positioned in the truth of the kingdom of God and can bring something different to what school teaches. School teaches great stuff, rock and roll, send them to school. But position them in different ways as well. And so please, please, please position your kids that God may be able to ask them questions of significance and release them into places of significance like Solomon. And if you don't know how to do that, get on your knees and go, God, the only way I can learn how to be a mum or a dad is to be a kid. So will you become my father more so that I would learn how to be a mother or a father by being a child and then I can pass it on to my kids. Enter into the wonder of sonship. Make sense? Um, The second thing I want to share with you is this whole word worship thing. Um, I'm really excited about this order. I think it's really fun. Um, I've been here the last few weeks and there's been some really, really special, powerful times with God. Um, You'll often hear a speaker say, I think I heard it a couple of weeks ago, someone was praying or whoever was introducing the speaker prayed, and God, we ask you to bless the word. We ask you to bless the word. What, What are we asking for? Because if I was to get up here and pray, God, I ask you to bless the word, and I do, God, I ask you to bless the word. <laughs> I'm not asking him to bless a piece of paper with some ink on it. It's not what I'm asking. I'm asking him to bless the word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. I'm asking him to bless the nature of Christ within me, that I may impart to you the nature of Christ in a greater measure than, than without his blessing, if that makes sense. One of the, um, the words in the Old Testament for blessing literally means to add weight. So, you know when you go to a market, and um, we probably don't do it here, but overseas you go to a market and you say, I want this many oranges. And they put them in a little weigh thing, and it's got a, you know, a, a, you know what the old scales look like? You know, balance scales? So you put oranges on this side, and the scales will go bang. And then you'd add weight to this side, counting it up so, until they became even, and you knew what the weight was in oranges and how much you would charge, Yeah. So this word, to add weight, literally means blessing. And so when we're going, God, would you bless the word? What we're asking is for God to bless, add weight to Christ in me, so that I can impart more Christ to you, so that you receive Christ. And this is really, really important, because what it does when we go word, worship, is it means our adoration of him and our worship to him is in response to him revealing himself. And we're tapping into a kingdom of God, divine truth, learning to respond to him. Everything we do in response. Some of you might have heard this. I don't think I've shared it from from stage, but when we were in Mozambique, um, we had a a day, we worshipped sometimes hours and hours and hours and hours a day because one of the values in Iris is we just, we follow Jesus. We just follow Jesus. So if we don't know where he's going, we don't go off and do something ourselves. We're followers. He said, come follow me. So if we don't, can't see him, we don't know where he's going, we stop and go, where are you that we may see you, that we may then follow you again. And we spent this time in worship. And one day I was standing there. And all of a sudden I could feel the presence of God behind me in an incredibly special way. And it wasn't the presence of Holy Spirit. It was different. And I said to him, I said to Jesus, you're here, aren't you? And he said to me, I am, I'm standing right behind you. And it was incredible. I don't know if you've ever had an encounter with Christ. I didn't see him, but I had these piercing eyes of love and adoration and desire burning into my heart through, through here. And it was this incredible experience. And he said to me, in my presence, what do you want to do? And I fell to my knees, weeping, and I put my face to the ground. And he said to me, this is the position of leadership. He said, if you will learn to follow me on your knees, when people look to you, they will see me. 
and I wept for about two hours because I suddenly realized that I'd spent so much time trying to be a leader that I'd never really learned how to follow. And he broke me. And he started to teach me this divine order of my yoke is easy and my burden is light when you just respond to me. It's so fun. I stand here and I'm not here to bring you my word. I, I don't care if, if it's eloquent or it's not, if it's perceived to be good or it's not, as long as it's him. And the only way I can do that is to not respond to you. Is to forget about you and, and stand here with my eyes captivated on him and just desiring him and loving him and saying, my Jesus, you are my everything. And telling you what he tells me to say because then they're not my words. It's the presence of Christ manifested. And then in worship, we get to respond to Christ. And so this whole word worship deal, it, it doesn't matter if in time the order gets reversed again because it's not about the program. But what's going to happen in your heart as this continues to play out is you're going to get used to and desiring of all worship coming from Christ revealing himself. Honestly, if, if the team get up here to play and you're like, I don't feel like it, one of the worst things you can do is force yourself to worship. What did he just say? Isn't God worthy to be worshipped? Yeah, he is. But let him put it in your heart. Just come before him and say, my king, I don't want to. I can't see you right now. There's, there's not a part of you that's inspiring me to worship you. And he'll put it in you. So this whole word worship thing, I'm really excited about it. Um, uh, never mind, he's not going there. Okay, transition. Um, Sandeiro Akiri um, spoke a word a while ago. I think it was about two and a half, maybe three years ago. And she came and she brought a word which was really relevant for us at the time, and I believe still is. And, and what she said was, um, who you are is not who you were, but who you are is not who you will be. And she came and she honored the fact that we had taken a journey with God, that who we are is not who we were. We've grown in God. But then she encouraged us that who we are is also not who we will be. And once, one thing that's become incredibly clear to us since coming back is there's a, there's a wonderful uh, assignment on the rock. Do you know that? I think some of you do. There's an incredible call on this house. And I couldn't see it a while ago. There really is. I, I, I wouldn't say this just to encourage because it's too dangerous, but I believe that God is calling the rock well, to himself. <laughs> but the assignment is that the rock would be significant in what God is doing in the nation of New Zealand and the nations of the world. And I passionately believe that. I passionately believe that if we walk according to the ways that he is inviting us to, the rock will be significant in bringing a new heart before him. I'm really concerned for our nation. I really am. I live in the blessing of my forefathers and mothers who have gone before me and written national anthems that say, God defend New Zealand. I live in the blessing of a country that has been established on the principles of God. But that's not what's happening today. And I don't fear because fear is from a different place. But I am highly concerned about the state of our nation. And I believe the rock, <laughs> you, are being invited to a phenomenal call. I really do, and I, I don't know how to put words to it. 
but I hope you can receive that in spirit. And some of you know that and some of you don't. The hard thing is that the length of the transition is determined by the significance of the call. We are here. The length of the transition to get to what God's inviting us to is determined by the significance of the call. So if God is inviting us to influence two people all around New Zealand, he might ask us to walk for a year to learn how. If he's asking us to influence two million people around New Zealand, we might have to walk for 15, 17, 20, 25 years before we've, he's ever built into us the, the capacity to outwalk the call. The, the, the significance of the call is determined, determines the length of the transition. And we all love Bethel, yeah? I'm sure you've, most of you have heard of Bill Johnson or Jesus Culture. Um, what God's doing over there is wonderful. Um, Bex and I call Bill uh, Uncle Bill because <laughs> he's like one of our uncles or fathers in the faith. I listen to this guy, and I, I mean, I've never met him, but I listen to him, and it's like he just pours Jesus over me and into me. <laughs> and I just come out after listening to something or reading one of his books, and, and, and it just blesses me. And so I love this guy. I love where their community is at. I love the fact that people with cancer walk into their building. I mean, I think I've told this story before, but big guy is jumping up and down at the back one day after a service and he's holding his pants up and his pants are like massive and there's like this gap in his pants and he's jumping up and down holding these pants. And one of the pastors walks up and goes, hey, what's going on? And he'd walked in with a massive stomach tumor. The doctors had given him one week to live. And he walked into the building and in the presence of God and the manifest presence of God is nobody prayed for him. He just encountered God. And the tumor disappeared. And so he's standing with these pants jumping up and down. And it's all medically verified. Doctors, I give you one week to live. <laughs> so the guy jumps in a car, drives straight for two days just to get to this one place that he heard maybe, maybe God was, God was there. I love that place. We love the destination. But you talk to Bill and Benny about the 17 years that it took to get there. Ten years in, they hadn't taken a holiday. They were booked in for one week, Monday morning to Saturday night. And the associate pastor comes to them on the Sunday night after Sunday night service and says, you know what, guys? I don't think we can cope with you going. It's really hard. Will you please not go on holiday? Because the church was, people were leaving, there was issues, there were struggles in this process of transition. And so we love where they got to. But are we prepared to walk the 10, 15, 20 years that it's going to take before God has been able to position us to fully walk in the call that he has for the rock? That's a big ask. I believe that our revelation of the call and our revelation of the process of transition will determine whether we get to receive what God has for the rock. So I just want to share for a bit on transition and then we're going to hang out with him a bit more. Hopefully it's both hanging out with him. Exodus chapter 2. Let me just give you a bit of background. Um, a guy called Joseph is born. He's got 11 older brothers. He has a dream that one day the brothers will bow down to him. He shares the dream with the brothers not so wise. The brothers decide they don't like him and they decide to kill him. So they dig a big hole. They chuck him in the hole and they leave him there. One brother feels compassion upon him and so goes and gets him out and sells him as a slave again. That's not really the kind of compassion I would like to experience from a brother. But anyway, <laughs> I guess slavery is better than death. Um, it's funny, eh? I feel compassion for my brother, so I'll sell you as a slave instead. Really? That's not the kind of compassion I want my brothers and sisters to show me. Um, he goes, he ends up in Egypt. Most of you probably know the story. He has incredible trials, but long story short, he ends up second in charge of all of Egypt, second to Pharaoh only. 
And what God has put within him enables Egypt to go through an incredible famine. And he stores up all this food and all this grain and all this stuff so that they go through this famine. What happens from there is, is the Bible says that the Israelites were faithful to God and they multiplied greatly. Then it says that a new pharaoh arose over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. Out there, you have on the wall, what's the first bit? Thank you. What's the second bit? Well done. Maybe a few more voices next time. Knowing him, loving others, the third bit is walking together. Greg and I are connected, yeah? We're friends. We share stuff. There's a unity between us. If our kids connect in that same unity with his kids, the unity extends and grows. If my grandkids connect with his grandkids, our grandkids will stand on the foundation of our unity and the unity of our kids, and the unity will grow. Walking together is not just about this generation. If you can pass it on, it has a, a, a multiplication. And what we see here in Exodus chapter 1 is a new pharaoh arose who had no idea who Joseph was. In other words, he had no idea who the Israelites were to the Egyptian people. He had no idea that the Israelites were the saving grace for the Egyptian people. Had he known that, he wouldn't have had to fear the, the Israelite people. He could have reaffirmed their call within Egypt and released them fully. And the book of Exodus would look so different. And so this thing of walking together is generational. But, but a new pharaoh, he didn't know who, G, who Joseph was. And he started to condemn and uh, oppress the Israelites. So Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. It says in the first half that God heard their groaning. God heard their complaining. You will never transition into the new land that God has for you while you are satisfied with your current space. You won't. You will never, ever, ever seek out the more in God when the current is enough. The whole transition of the Israelites going from slavery to the promised land, as long as that took, it all started because they went, this space is not okay. I'm not satisfied with this space. I'm not satisfied to live where I am. I'm not satisfied to live in slavery to these things. I want a new land. And you will never transition if you, if you stay satisfied in your current space. One of the hardest things in following Christ is being desperately hungry and satisfied and full all at the same time. It's one of the hardest things to be desperate and hungry for the more and completely satisfied with what he has already done all at the same time. And we need both. Because if you're not hungry, you become apathetic. If you're not hungry for more, you just exist where you are. If you don't want more of God, you don't go through the trials and the crushings and all the stuff to get more of God. You just stay where you are. But we also need to be satisfied and fed all at the same time. 
Because if we don't be satisfied and fed, we don't steward the move that he's already given well, and then he can't pour out more. It's in stewarding what he has done that enables him to pour out more, yeah? So we need to to have this dual thing going on where we're so hungry and we're so satisfied and content all at the same time. And it's one of the hardest things in the Christian walk. As as a personality, you'll probably um, gravitate to one or the other. I find it quite easy to be hungry. I find it quite easy to, to desire the more. What I'm not good at is stewarding the works of God behind me. And so I'm always talking about the more. And the people that are really excited about what God has done six months ago feel like I'm dishonoring what God did do because I want to chase what God is doing. And so I have to be really, really careful because God will anoint people to steward the land that he has given to enable others to chase the more. And then he anoints people to steward that land and people chase the more and he stewards that land and other people chase the more. And you look back across 20 years and you see 20 years worth of land taken. Because you're hungry and you're full all at the same time. Let me just talk to you about hunger for a second. Um, Hunger's a sign of health. Ever thought about that? Parents, if your kids aren't hungry, you start to freak out, eh? Imagine if your kids didn't get hungry for like four whole days. I mean, it would make mealtimes bliss. But aside of that, you might be a little bit concerned. Like if our dog goes, oh, that's bad because it's like I'm comparing our dog to your kids. Yikes. Oh, two seconds earlier, Lord. If our dog's not hungry, um, I would start to worry because she's, she's a hungus. You know, if she didn't eat, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? And so hunger is actually a sign of health. Hunger is a good sign of health, both in the natural and in the spiritual. But there's a difference. Hunger in the natural world, you get hungry by not eating. In the natural world, you get hungry by not eating. In the spiritual world, you get hungry by eating. You get hungry by partaking. You get hungry. It's like when I started to tell you that story about that guy that walked into the community. How many started to have a bit of a rise within you for a desire for signs and wonders and healing? You eat of it, and it creates a hunger for more of it. That's why we give testimony, because the testimony of Christ starts to create this flow and this hunger within you. You know, we were in Mozambique, and this girl, she was really cute. She was like, as proper British as it gets, you know? Um, and, and she goes out, and she's praying for this woman in, in, in the village. And um, they were just going hut to hut, just asking if they could pray and bless people. And so they weren't sort of, it wasn't like they'd gone on anybody who's got this condition or whatever come forward. They were just going hut to hut to hut, can we pray for you, can we bless you? And this girl's like praying for this, um, this lady. And she's like praying for this lady, and she's only been praying for like a few seconds, and the lady starts talking, and this British girl like opens her eye a little bit, and like her, her, she sees this, this woman like looking out the window, and she's like, oh, how rude, I'm praying for you. And, 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 she, and then the, woman's, the, the translator says, oh, the woman's talking about a red car. Like, she's talking about... And the, the English girl's like, oh, how, that's just not right. I've come all the way from England to pray for you. And you should be taking my prayers seriously. And she's sharing all of this. What she didn't know is that before she started praying, the woman couldn't see. And while she's praying, the woman could see. So she's talking about the red car. <laughs> so you hear that and you go, God, I want the blind to see. You start to feed on the testimony, and you start to eat on it. If God, look, I've got a book at home written by a guy called John G. Lake, and every time I start to lose the desire for signs and wonders and the manifest power of God, I pick up the book and I read, because I have to feed. 
and in humility, I'm acknowledging that there's not enough food within me yet for me to feed on, on the testimony of my own life. And so I'm seeking the testimony in others. And so if you want to be hungry, ask God where you are to eat to make you more hungry in the kingdom. Because hunger is a sign of humility. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of my neediness before him. We don't like that word. Our culture tells us that to be needy is like, don't be needy. I'm listening to a worship album by a guy. He just starts free worshiping and he's like, I've never been this needy before. I'm like, come on. Let's be needy before our God. It's a sign of humility when we learn to hunger before him. We need hunger. If you don't know what God is inviting the rock to, can you please get on your knees and ask him to show you? Please. If you think you know what God is inviting the rock to, would you please get on your knees and ask him to show you? Please. Please, please, please. Because if you can see it, you'll start to get hungry and desperate to see it outworked and outplayed. We need hunger. We don't want to stay in our current space. The second half of verse 25 says, God took notice. Verse 25, God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Listening to a bunch of stuff by a guy called Sean Foyt. Anyone heard of him? Cool. You won't know the story then. Um, successful young guy, uh, went to business school in the States, young, I think he just graduated and he decided this was a few years ago when property was all the go and he decided that property was a good deal and so he started to, um, acquire land and build houses on it and he was doing really well, really, really well for a 20 something year old guy and he got to the place where through doing a bunch of small deals, he bought enough property to put 45 houses on, pretty good at 23 ish put 45 houses on and sell them all off and make an absolute killing of a profit. Also a gifted worshiper. And so he's like, God, I'm just going to do this deal. It's going to be done in six months time. And then I'm going to have enough money for you to do whatever you want with me for the next five years. (laughs) Exactly. In other words, I'm going to provide. I'm going to empower you, God. Right heart. But quite funny when you you see it for what it is. And um, so anyway, God starts to reckon with Psalm something where God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where will my resting place be? Where will my resting place be? And Sean started to get this, this vision and this revelation of the resting place of God being his own heart and being your hearts. And he started to get wrecked that God had a throne and a footstool, but no resting place on the earth. And so he started to say, God, I, I, I want to be your resting place. I want to spend the rest of my life establishing a resting place for you firstly in my heart and helping a resting place be established in others' hearts for you. And so anyway, he thinks he's got this big plan. God speaks to him really clearly one day. He's about two months into this deal and uh, God says, cut it, cut and run. And Sean's like, but, 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 <laughs> three months, God, I'll have enough money for five years. No, cut it and run. So he sells his house, sells everything he has, gets in his car with his one dog and his wife. And as they're leaving their house, their beautiful house, their beautiful life, all the money that was on the table, 
His wife looks across at him and starts crying and says, Sean, where are we going? He looks at her, starts crying and says, I have no idea, but we're just going to follow Jesus. And they start going from place to place in the States. And they would literally get in the car and go, God, where do we drive? Which way do we go? And God would lead them to different communities, different places where they would go and they would just worship and incredible things were happening. You know, special things were happening. But six months in, Sean's lying on the floor of a prayer room, sleeping on the floor with his wife trying to sleep next to him on the floor. And he looks over at his wife and he says, God, what are we doing? I can't even provide a bed for my wife. God, what are we doing? And like, God, there were 17 people here tonight. And 17 people is awesome, but it's great that there's 17, but we're six months in and it's only 17 people. And God, are you going to use us at all or are you not? And God gives him this vision where he sees the earth like from space. And then God zooms in to the United States of America. And then he zooms into the state that they were in. And then he zooms into the city. And then he zooms into the suburb. And then he zooms into the roof of the prayer hut. And he says this to Sean, you have my attention. You have my attention. A couple of weeks ago, we were in worship. Sunday night, I was here. And I was worshiping. And God said to me, look up. And I did. And there was a ceiling tile. That one. And it had a bigger crack in it than that. It had quite a big opening. And I heard the Lord say really, really clearly, that our praise and our worship and our adoration of him was starting to get his attention. It was like the ceiling of our apathy was breaking off our lives and a clear flow between us and him was starting to be established where he was able to zoom into our hearts and zoom into our lives and we would have the attention of the Lord. And I said, God, what does that mean? What does it mean? And he said to me, I want the rock to learn to steward my attention with adoration as your response. I want you to learn to steward my attention with adoration as your response. This morning, um, here's the thing. It's really hard to keep your attention always on God. Have you found that? I mean, like, I, don't, I don't know about you, but even tonight, personally, while I've been standing up here, sometimes he's had my full attention, sometimes he's had a little bit of my attention, and sometimes he's had none. And I'm preaching. Great example, Johnny. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> but, but some of you, he's had your attention for this much, and some of you for this much, and some of you for this. It's really hard to keep your attention always on God all the time because there's so many things competing for your attention. This morning, um, I was sitting talking to Paul on the, um, after the service, and Maddie came up to me. And I love Maddie, but I was talking to Paul. And she came and she stood and waited really politely and really beautifully. And I just put my arm out, and I pat, not stopping talking to Paul, I put my arm out, I patted my knee, And she came and she climbed up on my... I didn't talk to her. I didn't look at her. I just put my arms around her and gave her a hug while I continued to give my attention to Paul. If we can learn to adore God, if we can learn to steward his attention with adoration, when he really needs to get a hold of our attention, he will. My heart position was one of adoration towards Maddie. 
I love her. But I was engaged in something else at the time. But had she needed me, she was close enough that she could have just spoken in my ear. She could have said something. She could have said, Johnny, I need you. Whatever. Does that make sense? You're kind of looking at me like, uh. And so if you write stuff down, please write this down. I must learn to more steward his attention with adoration. Ask him what that means. Ask him what that looks like for you. Come to Exodus chapter 4. So God starts to do this incredible stuff. He starts to talk to Moses about um, seeing the Israelite people freed. He starts to give Moses power. Moses is like, but when I go to them, Pharaoh won't believe me. And Moses is like, chuck your, your staff down, it becomes a snake. He's like, pick it up, it becomes a staff. Put your hand into your coat, pull it out. His hand's like leprous, put it back in again, pull it out, his hand's healed. So that's give him all these incredible powers. Like God's setting up for something pretty cool, yeah? I mean, you imagine that. If there's an entire nation in slavery. You imagine if God said to you, go to, uh, I don't know, go to Africa. Go to the child soldiers in Africa. And you're like, but nobody will listen to me, God. Why would the African government listen to me? And he's like, pick up this bottle and like chuck it on the ground and the bottle becomes a bird and flies off. And then he's like, call the bird back and you're like, and this bird comes flying down, sits on your shoulder. You pick it up, put it back on the ground, it becomes a bottle again. You'd be like, whoa, that's pretty trippy. (laughs) They might listen to me now. (laughs) You know, it's funny how we read this stuff, but actually when we place it into the context of reality, it's a whole lot more impressive than when we just read it. That'd be incredible. Something just, just completely changing form and life entering it. Going from a dead stick to a live snake. I need to learn that because we have snakes on our base. It would be really handy if I was able to just pick them up by the tail and turn into a stick. Pray for me. Um, so God's, God's setting it up for something pretty special. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) Is that random to you? I will give you power, but then I will harden the heart of the one who should be recognizing the power so they don't recognize it. I want to free you, but I'm going to make it harder to free you by hardening the heart of the only one who can let you go. That doesn't make sense to me. That's kind of like God working against himself. That's like God giving Moses power and then God making Pharaoh hard heart to make it harder so that Moses' tricks don't work anymore. What's that about? This is one of the really hard things about transition. Transition is about moving from bondage to freedom. Transition is always about moving from some measure of bondage to a greater measure of freedom. Always. But sometimes what God has to do is that he has to increase the bondage so that the bondage is able to exercise its full force against you so that you learn to overcome absolutely everything that that bit of bondage can throw at you. God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Egypt throws everything they have at the Israelite people. Everything. And God overcomes. 
God allows Moses to struggle more and he allows the Israelite people to suffer more so that they would learn that his greatness was beyond anything that could be thrown against them. That this is huge. It's absolutely huge. Because what it means is when you're suffering under oppression or fear or torment of something, God is going, I'm letting it come against you so that you will learn to overcome it. This is why. If it doesn't come against us in full measure, we may learn power. We may learn how to wield and exercise the power of God. But notice when God sent the disciples out, he did not say, I give you power over evil spirits to heal, so on and so forth. He said, I give you authority. There's a difference between authority and power. This is something that God has been teaching me a lot, and I'm sorry for the fight, guys. You've probably already heard this. But there is a massive difference between power and authority. The, the, um, in Africa, where we're going to, um, we have a, a big problem with um, robbery and, and people with guns. And one of my jobs is if the alarm goes off in the middle of the night, because um, there's an electric fence all around the base, I have to get up and go with the guard who is unarmed, and I'm unarmed because we choose not to engage in the ways of the flesh. You might think that's naive. I think that's faith. Um, and we patrol the property to see if anybody's coming in. And the way that I'm going to do that when we go back is to get a guitar and worship my way around. <laughs> and so the people coming into the base have power. They have guns. But they don't have authority. They don't. We have authority over that base. And so they can exercise all the power that they can exercise. They can shoot me. I don't care. I know where I'm going. I really don't. It's like for me to live as Christ, for me to die as gain. Might suck to be bigs, but she'll walk that out with God. <laughs> and vice versa. God wants us to learn to walk in authority. The Israelite people had to have everything that Egypt could throw against them so that when they came against other people in the transition from Egypt to the promised land, when those people threw everything against them, they were able to say, God has already overcome everything. I can walk in authority. This is where we get messed up. Authority is not control. Authority and control are different. The centurion said what? I to him, he's looking at Jesus. He says, I to him a man under authority. I recognize Christ that you are a man under authority and that's where your authority comes from. I am under authority. This, this is, I believe in the gift of leadership. So don't, what I said before about being a follower and a leader, when God invites you to follow him in the gift of leadership, it's not an invitation to exercise authority in a greater measure. It's an, it's an invitation to be under authority in a greater measure. It's an invitation to be more bound to him and more yielded to him than you were before. And so I don't want to just learn how to pray for the sick. I don't. I don't want to learn how to move in power in praying for the sick. I want the sick to be able to walk in and me go, Christ is in me in such a measure that I have authority and I take authority in Jesus' name, be gone. That's simple. If I just know how to move in power, when I exercise my power and the thing exercises its power and I perceive that its power is more than mine, I'm stuffed. Make sense? So God takes the Israelites down this journey where he hardens Pharaoh's heart that they might learn 
that true freedom is not the absence of conflict. True freedom is living in the authority of God in the midst of the conflict. Really quickly, a couple of quick things to, um, to close. Who likes Romans 8.28? All things work for good for those who love him according and are called according to his purposes. The very implication of that verse is that not all things will be good. <laughs> uh, all things work for good. What I'm saying to you, my people, is that not all things will be good, but I will cause all things to work for good. When you are in transition, when God has given you a vision to go to a whole new place and a whole new space, when you're in transition, I can guarantee not everything will be good. It's not like you're going to be like, we're going to this beautiful place and, and Greg's going to be perfect all the time and the elders are always going to get it right and no one's ever going to get anything wrong and praise God, we're going to reach the promised land. Now, there'll be carnage. There will be. I promise you, I have a little bit of sight over what God wants to use this place for and there will be carnage. And that's funny on some hands, but on some hands it's not because your friends might come to you and say, I don't trust Greg anymore. And you're going to be in a situation where you're going, we're in transition, Romans 8, 28, all things work for good. What do I do, my king? It's going to be hard. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Why? To hide truth. Why? So that only that those who had a heart to respond to him would receive the truth. Why? Because he didn't want to make someone obligated to the truth that didn't have the heart to walk in the truth. Why does he speak in a still small voice? It means you have to lean in. I think Bill Johnson says he speaks and it's his grace. It's by his grace that he speaks in a still small voice because it means that I have to lean into him, which means I have to be close to him to hear what he's saying. Because if I wasn't close to him, what he was saying would destroy me. And so as you transition... The gold that God has, the reward, the treasure, the identity, the invitation of walking in his identity, therefore clothe yourselves in Christ. Really? You mean that what the rock is called to is to clothe ourselves in Christ so that when people see us, they see all the natures and the attributes of Christ? Are you sure? What he's got is incredible, but the cost will be big. And you have to be able to hear his voice. And know that he's walking with you and he will cause all things to work together for good. The other thing that I just really felt this year. Um, wow, I'm really going on. I'm sorry. Um, if the team would like to come. Actually, no, sorry. Stay. Stay for two seconds. Um, you know David and Goliath? You've got David. Um, you've got Eliab, David's older brother. You've got Goliath. And you've got Saul. David is the unprofessional anointed. David isn't trained as a soldier. David doesn't know battle. David is unprofessional in every sense of the word for the environment that he has, but he's anointed. This is the, he comes across Eliab, who is the professional soldier, but is unanointed. What does Eliab say? Eliab accuses him. Eliab comes against the anointed. We have this deal where um, we tend to call the qualified. So if your pipe bursts in your kitchen, what do you do? You call a qualified plumber. That's what we do. It's the whole way our framework, it's the whole way we think. We call the qualified. Problem is that God qualifies the called. 
He works the opposite way. He calls someone and then he qualifies them. I was speaking at a church a while ago and the person came up to me and said, oh, where did you go to Bible college? And I laughed and said, I haven't. And he looked at me with horror and said, so what makes you think you can stand up there and preach? <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> I hope I wasn't preaching. He was completely dumbfounded that an unqualified person would be given the platform. And yet, God qualifies the call, and it brings glory to him. So you have David, who's the unqualified anointed. You have Eliab, who's the qualified unanointed. Then you have Saul. Who was Saul? Saul was the ex-anointed. What did the ex-anointed try and do? Hey, wear my armor. Do it my way. Look like me. Be like me. And then you have Goliath, who's the opposition, the enemy, the antichrist. David had to face each one of those people. David had to face the unanointed, the ex-anointed, and the enemy. The enemy's really easy because you just get to kill him. <laughs> Dealt with. Done. But what about Eliab? What about Saul? He couldn't kill them. And I'm going to say this because I don't think Greg can. He's anointed. Does it make him right all the time? Nope. Does it mean he'll get things right? No, no, not always. Does it mean that at times you might have to follow him into mistakes with the elders? Yep. Don't follow him into sin. But David's model was, I'll follow Saul. God put him in, God will take him out. See, this gives me incredible rest. It's not my church, it's God's. If Greg's messing it up, God will take him out. If he wants... It's a really easy solution. Greg walking along Lambton Quay, bus. <laughs> Problem solved. But you have to know who he is. You have to know whether he's anointed or not. You have to know who the elders are. You have to know whether they're anointed or not. You have to know who the leadership is that God has ordained. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't ordain qualified people. I'm currently doing a graduate diploma in applied theology because he told me to. It's not very fun. <laughs> but I trust he has purpose in it. So it doesn't mean that he won't call the qualified. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when we learn to treat one another, um, here's the thing. Nah, it doesn't matter. That was me. Sorry. If we learn to treat each other based on what God has anointed us with, if we learn to respect the leader, if we learn to yield to, then we receive the blessing. And I really believe, I believe with all my heart, that as the rock transitions to the vision that God has for you, your calling is a heavenly calling, your calling is him. Like Sam said a few weeks ago, I thought he put it so wonderfully. The calling is a heavenly calling, the calling is Christ. But as he transitions us, as we clothe ourselves in Christ into the assignment that he has for us. I passionately believe those of you sitting in the room now that are there will be those that are able to recognize the anointing of the people that God has put in place to walk us to here. And those of you that have learned to yield to the anointing and therefore receive from the anointing of Christ in that person. It's not that Greg's better than you. It's not. He knows that. If he didn't know that, God wouldn't have put him there. You have anointings for other things. 
You do. You have an anointing to go into an accountant's office and birth the kingdom and be captivated by Christ in the accountant's office. I was talking to a guy the other day. He's a... What is he? Something really boring. (laughs) No, it really was. Um, What was it? I can't remember. Anyway, I'm talking to him. And he's like, so every time I go to work, I just find Jesus. And it's so miraculous because my work is just boring. But I find God in it. And some of you have that anointing. And if we can just learn to recognize one another's anointing and relate to one another on the basis of the gift, it gets really, really fun really, really quick. Because I receive Christ from you and you receive Christ from me. Okay, team, come. Remember the guy that got God's attention? Sean Foyt? Um, A couple of years later, he was in Iraq, of all places. Um, A friend of his had... um, opened a cafe there with, as a front for evangelism, but it wasn't going very well. They had no converts. Um, and <laughs> they'd been there for a few years, and it was quite hard. And so they asked Sean and team to come, because Sean's whole deal is we worship, and then it's the presence of God that does what is going to happen. We don't force it. We, don't, we just worship, and God leads us. I'm a follower. And so he goes over with this ragtag team of like young American Christian people. So like already they're at a loss. They're American, they're Christian, and they're in Iraq. <laughs> I mean, talk about Al-Qaeda opportunity, <laughs> like hostages and stuff. Anyway, so they do this all-night um, worship and prayer thing. And about two hours into the all-nighter, these um, Muslim guys come in, fully dressed um, in the, uh, what, what, they were clerics. Ooh. They were clerics. And um, I didn't know what that was for a second. I was like, where's that coming from? Um, sorry. Oh, Lord. Um, and so these Muslim guys come in fully dressed and cleric. A cleric is a high up person in the Islamic religious system. So it'd be like a pastor walking into a, a, a Muslim, or whatever. And these guys walk in and they sit at the back. And Sean's worshipping and he's like, Is there a bomb under your clothes? Logical question. He's a little bit scared. And God says to him, Stay where you are keep worshipping me. So he does. They go all night long. He walks up to these two men at the end of in the morning as, as God directs him and he sits down beside them and he says, hi, I'm Sean. Do you speak English? Yeah, we speak English. Why are you here? And they start to explain that they're Muslim clerics high up in, in the Muslim world in Iraq. And they say, we were sitting in our balcony and we started to hear the sound of healing for our nation. We started to hear the sound of healing for our nation. And so they left their balcony and they followed the sound of healing to this little prayer room with this little ragtag bunch of American Christians. And they sat there all night listening to the sound of healing. And they say to Sean, we have many friends who need to hear the sound of healing for our nation. Will you come and share with them? And Sean prays and goes, God, am I walking into a trap? What what are we doing here? I'm about to take a team of people with me, God. And God says, go. I love it when a person's faith is so simple to a yes and a no. You don't need to assess the risk. And and, and do we have insurance for this? Yes, his name is God. (laughs) I'm not against insurance, but sometimes we make it so complicated. 
And so Sean says, do we go? God says, yes. They pray about it in the team. They get directions and this, this, um, these two people direct them to the world's, it was rated as the world's most dangerous city at the time on the border between Iraq and Iran. And there's all sorts of carnage going on there and, and, and there's all sorts of activity in the wrong kind of way. And Sean's like, God, are you sure? And God's like, yeah, okay. So they load up a van with music gear and they drive to the address that he's given them. They pull up to the address and it is Saddam Hussein's old northern palace. Saddam's captured by now. But it's Saddam Hussein's palace. This is not so long ago. And they go in and they get the, the guys, these two guys meet them and they take them to this room and they say, this is where we want you to share. And Sean says, you do know that we're going to share Jesus. You do know that the sound of healing for your nation is the person of Christ. And the Muslim guys look him in the eye and say, yeah, we know. And so they start setting up. And then Sean goes over and says, hey, this is quite a big room. How many friends have you got? The guy's like, 400. Sean's like, are they friends? No, no, they're all clerics. Well, yeah, they are friends, but they're all clerics high up in the religious system in Iraq. And so they start, Sean's like, wow, we need to pray. <laughs> so they're praying and setting up their music gear and praying. And, and then these massive TV cameras get wheeled in. And they're like, we're in this war-torn country in the middle of nowhere. Where the heck do you get Hollywood-style TV cameras? This is just weird. And, and a little bit of fear enters in again. Like, are we going to end up being recorded for something that we really don't want to be recorded for? It's a real question when you're in places like that. It's a very real question. Very real. And God's like, stay. And so he says to them, what are the cameras for? And they're like, well, we have some other friends that we want to hear the sound of healing for the nation. And he says, where? And, and this guy starts listing off, I think, seven or eight different Muslim countries in the Middle East. Sean has this flashback to years previous where he had been in a really cheesy worship conference. And this little old lady had come up to him, like complete in her conference garb, waving like the line of Judah flag. And she'd come up to him and she'd said, God told me to give you a word that God is going to use you to bring the sound of healing to these nations. And she listed off seven Muslim nations in the Middle East and he has this flashback to this moment and goes wow God I'm so sorry I didn't stew that praise steward that praise to you for bringing it about and he says how many people do you think are going to watch this and the guy says seven to eight million and so these guys these 400 men come into the room the TV cameras roll up they just start worshipping and they start testifying to Christ and if you know Muslim people the only worship they know is on their face and these 400 Muslim men are standing in their cleric outfits, which identify them as leaders in the Muslim system with their hands raised in honor and worship and glory to God. They ask for testimony. And a cleric walks up, grabs a microphone and says, I saw the man of light dressed in white. And another man comes up and says, I saw the man of light dressed in white. And another man comes up and says, I saw the man of light dressed in white. And Sean says, how many of you have seen the man of light dressed in white? And half the room put up their hands. That night, 230 churches were birthed. 230. Someone says, how did Sean make sure they all went okay from there? He didn't. It's not his problem. I will build my church. All because a bunch of ragtag people were willing to steward the presence of God and God used it.
And so tonight as we worship, this is what is on what I feel is on God's heart for tonight. I feel like he wants you to ask him for hunger. But here's the thing. You don't strive and chase the hunger. You yield and receive the hunger. And when you receive it, you allow it to come out. And so I want you to worship according to how you feel. But I want you to yield how you feel to God and give him permission to put a fire within you to worship. Why don't we stand? God, I pray that tonight you would birth more of yourself in us. Hmm. Let's just go.